Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. So would you turn to Isaiah chapter 60? We're making our march towards the end, Isaiah 60, and the reason that uh, this last bit of the book of Isaiah is so important is this. When you think about the book of Isaiah as we began this, you may remember that we said that Isaiah in many ways is, is the entire Bible in miniature, and so because it's the entire Bible in miniature, Um, You might expect that there is an Old Testament portion, there is, and a New Testament portion, there is, and there's also a portion that we would align with that which we would call the last days, the, the book of Revelation, and we have reached that portion, and so we're going to see how this incredible period of time that the Lord is going to deal with the earth for how it's treated the Jewish people, and ultimately that the Jewish people will come to know their Messiah. And while the scriptures are clear that when Jesus came the first time, he was rejected, despised exactly as we saw, by the way, in chapter 52 and 53, specifically chapter 53, that he would be bruised, crushed, the iniquities that were the chastisement for our peace put upon him. Uh, They rejected Messiah. We don't want this man to rule over us. But that will not always be so. And so the remaining seven chapters uh, here in this incredible book paint this picture that is the the glorious reign really of the king, the kingdom age, and the glorious time when the Lord will finally return a second time and deal with sin and deal with the finality of mankind's capacity to, to do evil and bring about that kingdom age. And so would you join me? We'll pick up uh, here in Isaiah 60. Father, we thank you that you have a plan, Lord, when it looks bleak in our world, when it's hard to imagine that you could have even saved the Jewish people from destruction. Uh, In our lifetime, many that are alive today uh, were alive, Lord, during that time when the Jewish people were nearly exterminated in the Second World War, and yet they're back in the land and prospering. They're they're actually doing amazingly well, even though the world has set itself against them in so many ways. How we pray that you would bless us, Lord, with understanding, speak to us through your word, encourage us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. The story of God begins in the Garden of Eden, and it is the story of grace. Amen? We see that in Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sin. God sees that sin, and rather than starting over, and this is so important for us to realize, God could have just simply started over. He could have said, you know what? Well, Adam and Eve, you failed the test. I'm going to make a new couple, and we'll start with them. And he could have kept doing that until there was sinless perfection. But he didn't. Instead, he poured out grace on Adam and Eve. 
And that grace has been extended throughout history and throughout time to this day. What begins always with God's grace always ends with God's glory. An example of that is your life in Christ. It begins with God's grace because to believe in him, to receive him, is to receive his grace by faith. And that's a gift to you. But it will one day end in glory because you will be glorified one day when you step out of time and into eternity with the Lord. And in fact, 1 Peter chapter 5, there in verses 10 and 11 says this, but may God, the God of all grace, who called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, in other words, one day, Uh, Whether you die or he raptures us, you're going to be called into an eternal state of glory through Christ Jesus after you've suffered for a little while. Uh, For all of us tonight, you know, we're all suffering a little bit. We're all wearing masks. We're all doing the things. The church is not as full as we'd like to see it. We're going through these things. Um, But the believers in this world have always suffered in some way, shape, or form. This is nothing new. After you've suffered a while, perfect, established, strengthen, and settle you. And to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter ends his letter with this admonition that God is going to receive the glory from your life as a believer. He will. He started it in grace, it's going to end in glory. That's really the story of redemption. It's the story of the Bible. This truth, though it doesn't seem like it at times, extends to the Jewish people as well. So many people look at the Jewish people and they say, well, God's just done with them. There's a whole theology that we call replacement theology that's wrapped around The Jewish people rejected. They literally were responsible for the death of Jesus. God said, enough, that's it, I'm done with them. He has no plan. But the Bible doesn't paint that picture at all. The Bible paints the picture that God still has a plan for national Israel. The Jewish people, they are still his chosen people, in fact. And he loves them dearly. And he began with them in grace as well. Abraham's story, when you read Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Abraham, though he did not see the fullness of the promise in his lifetime, saw the fullness of the promise when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, what began in grace ends in glory. I don't know how many of you actually thought about this. One day you're going to be able to talk to Abraham. You'll be able to... Abraham, what were you thinking as you were trudging up Mount Moriah with Isaac and the sticks and the fire? And then what were you, what was going through your mind? Have you ever thought about that? What begins with God's grace always ends in God's glory. Always. There is never a time when that's not true. God's grace brings God's glory. And so for the Jewish people, 
Paul in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. How is it written? Well, Paul was writing in New Testament times. He's writing from Rome. He's near the end of his life. Caesar Nero is the ruler. And during that period of time, he writes, for the deliverer will come out of Zion. Hmm. Kind of sounds like what Isaiah the prophet wrote. And he will turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them. Put this in your head. Paul's writing in AD 62, Jesus has been gone for 30 years. The Apostle Paul says, I still see this promise as valid. This is my covenant with my own people when I take away their sins. What is the only way that your sins can be taken care of? How can they be taken away? Through personal faith in Jesus Christ, amen? So this is the Apostle Paul, after Jesus has ascended to heaven, reminding the Jewish people, as he's writing from Rome some 30 years later, as he's about to have his life taken by Caesar Nero, that God still intends to keep his promises to the Jewish people. Concerning the gospel, verse 28 says of Romans 11, as he has just quoted from the 59th chapter that we just studied last week in Isaiah, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all by faith, didn't see the promise completed, but they believed it was coming. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God gifts and when God calls, nobody can undo that. What God has said will happen will happen. It is a certainty. It's why our hope, when we, we, we don't hope as the world hopes. We hope in certainty of those things that are to come. Though we have not yet seen them come to pass exactly as Hebrews 11 says, for as you were once disobedient to God and yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. Isn't it crazy that we as Gentile believers have actually received the grace of God even in the disobedience through the Jewish people not seeing Messiah. The gospel was spread through that event. But that doesn't mean that God is going to be unfaithful to his people. And even so, these that have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown, they might also obtain mercy. Even though Annas and Caiaphas, in that sense, were successful in their plot. The people that shouted on the day that Jesus was tried, we do not want this man to rule over us. Even though that was said, and it was intended, it was meant. Even though Jesus said, I, I would gather you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Even though Jesus, as you've been with us in Luke's gospel, 
stood on the Mount of Olives and looks at the temple and says, there will come a day when not one stone will be left on top of that temple mount. And it is true today that that is the case. But that doesn't negate the promises of God. God intends that one day all Israel will be saved, that they might obtain mercy. Mercy is simply you not getting what you do deserve. Grace is you getting what you don't, but mercy is you not getting what you do deserve. I know what I deserve, and it's certainly not heaven. I am going to receive mercy. God has adopted me into his family and cleansed me by the blood of the Lamb. For God has committed them to all disobedience that he might have mercy on them all. In other words, ultimately, God is going to make good on that promise. And so in this mini Bible we call the book of Isaiah, this book of consolations, the New Testament portion, chapters 40 to 66, he already began it, chapter 40, with this beautiful prophecy of the one who would prepare the way, a picture of John the Baptist coming, and through that he says the glory of the Lord shall be revealed there in chapter 40 and verse 6. How is the glory of the Lord revealed? Through his son. That's the glory of the Lord. It's the glory of the Lord to you. It's the glory of the Lord to me. And so it's in that context, these final seven chapters, you're going to see the word glory or glorified or something like it in the original language. Some 23 times. God's glory is on the scene because God's Son is in view. What begins with grace always ends with the glory of the Lord. Verse 1, arise and shine for your light has come. You remember how John's gospel begins? With the light, amen? There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Emmanuel, light has come into the world, but men enjoyed the darkness. For your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And so this looks forward to a time when finally the Jewish people actually know Messiah. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, a deep darkness on the people. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you and the Gentiles shall come to your light. You know, Jerusalem today, Israel today, is such an incredible dichotomy of thinking with regard to we who know the Lord already and what is going on in Israel. One of the things that strikes you is the fact you, you kind of you go to Jerusalem and you almost expect there to be the Shekinah glory of God glowing over the whole city. But what really the whole city is about is a city that is about as contested and divided as any city in the world could possibly be. It's the home of three faiths. You, you have a, a massive population of people who worship the God of Islam. It's the center of Judaism. And their outdoor sanctuary, the, the western wall, wall the Hakutal. On the temple mount above the, the wall, 
are mosques. And very often, in fact, upon the Temple Mount, the Muslims will take and throw rocks on the Jewish people worshiping below. It's like, you know, how can this be God's holy city? And then you have all of the Christian visitors. Even the old city itself is divided up into the Jewish quarter and the Arab quarter and the Christian quarter and the Armenian quarter. You have the Byzantine part. You have the ancient part of the city. It's just this crazy, how could this possibly ever get to this place? Well, there's one answer, and his name is Jesus. He still has a plan. That city is going to be like that one day, and the Gentiles shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together, and they come to you from afar, and your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be nursed at your side. And then you shall see and become radiant and your heart will swell with joy because of the abundance of the sea that shall be turned to you and the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. I want you to focus in on that for a second. Because I believe we can see the glimmers of this time now. But I can tell you something. For the last 2,000 years, and definitely since Isaiah's time, which makes it 2,700 years almost, that has not been the case. There have been no Gentiles in the land of Israel bringing their wealth to the Jewish people. That is a very, very new development. And the multitude of camels shall cover your land, dromedaries of Midian, and these are figurative if you want to look at that way it's just really the wealth of the world during Isaiah's time if you had camels as it was during Abraham's time if you had a bunch of camels you were wealthy especially dromedaries they could carry more goods of Midian and Ephath all those of Sheba shall come Queen of Sheba came to figure out what in the world is this guy Solomon all about with all of his raiment of riches. Who is this guy? That wealth. They shall bring their gold and incense and shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. What is this all about? Well, it's the rise of Jewish innovation and Jewish wealth and Jewish prosperity. I've thrown some things up there on the slide that's in front of you and you can easily fact check these things if you'd like but if you remember in this passage we're talking about the very last days in fact they are days that are still future to us tonight but they are much closer than they were during Isaiah's time they're much much closer than they were during Jesus' time and they are very close relative to the time of the end tonight because they, these things are in view. Why? Because the prophecy of Ezekiel that Israel would be gathered back together, this picture of these dry bones that would have sinew and gather together and become flesh again and rise up, that has happened. The Jewish people are back in the land. That didn't happen until 1948. 70 roughly 
tonight, 73 years ago. Hasn't been that long. It's been less than a biblical generation. So what's going on in the land of Israel? What, what are the Jewish people really all about when you think of them now and think of what this is saying? That the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. That's not just the wealth of a little region. That's the wealth of the earth, by the way. That somehow there would be an incredible prosperity In the Encyclopedia Britannica, you can look up in their almanac, they have this list of 321 great inventions dating back to 1300 BC. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not too thrilled about the invention of the boomerang, but that's considered number one. It was the first returnable weapon, I guess, you know, so that was pretty good. If you wanted to kill a rabbit, you could use a boomerang, you could get the weapon back. Followed by number two in 6,000 B.C., which was beer. Kind of tells you where mankind's been all this time. 4,000 B.C. was wine. The most recent innovation, believe it or not, that's on that list is Viagra. Don't blame me for the list, okay? But if you look at this list and then you subtract out all the things that were invented by more than one person or a corporation like General Electric invented artificial diamonds, that was one of the things that was on there. But if you split it up by population, you look at the population of the world, you're going to find out that the Jewish people have produced more than 23 times the number of the world's greatest inventions that should be evident by population. In other words, there's an inordinate amount of innovation, intelligence, wealth building. Let me give you some of the things they invented. How many of you right now are wearing jeans? You owe that to the Jewish people. Levi Strauss, Jewish How many of you ladies have lipstick? You owe that to the Jewish people. Or East Levy. How many of you have used a ballpoint pen? Lazio Biro. Jewish. The next one on my list is um, we were spared the horrors of invading Japan by Robert Oppenheimer, the atomic bomb. Jewish. And if you go down the list, instant photography, holography, one that we're all really thankful for, the television remote control, Jewish. Also the hydrogen bomb, the thermal. How about any of you had someone saved in your family by a cardiac defibrillator? Jewish. How about a cardiac pacemaker? Jewish. Artificial heart? Jewish. Cell phone? Jewish, cardiac stents, Jewish, the microchip, if you own a cell phone, any computer with a microchip in it, that's a Jewish innovation. Inordinate amounts of those things that we would say are necessary in our day and time. 
And if you expand this out to going for the gold, and by that I mean the Nobel Prize, it even gets more extreme. Remember, they're 2% of the world's population, but they have 22.5% of all Nobel laureates are Jewish. Based on their GDP, um, they're 29th in the world out of all of the nations of the world total, and yet they're the 153rd smallest country. Power rankings, they're inside the top 10 with places like Russia and China and the United States. They have the seventh best median income in the entire world and the sixth most stable economy. God is already blessing the Jewish people and has been ever since the Second World War. And it continues to get better every single day. You travel to Israel today, Uh, Basically, Silicon Valley, which used to be here in California, has moved to Netanya on the coast of Israel. Google is there. Motorola is there. Apple is there. The research and development, almost all of it is done in Israel now. They have the highest graduation rate with people with master's degrees and above of any population on the planet. Your Bible says there's going to be a day when the light's going to shine and during that time, the Jewish people are going to see the world's wealth come to their doors. Hmm. Interesting. Now can you kind of imagine why the Jewish people didn't want Jesus? Think about it. If they knew what the prophet Isaiah said... And they're looking for a political ruler and a wealth-bringing ruler and prosperity. You can kind of see how they might possibly have missed Jesus, an itinerant pastor who was homeless. I didn't say that to be funny. That's the truth. Jesus was a homeless, itinerant pastor who had no place to lay his head. Furthermore, not only did he not rule and reign, he actually gave his life a ransom and died. And so you can kind of look at this from a little different perspective. You you can actually understand how maybe the Jewish people were actually looking for someone that they understood was going to bring prosperity. They understood would bring a kingdom that was unlike any other kingdom in which they would be the center The only problem with it was they just had their time wrong. And so Jesus, as he was speaking to Peter, he's talking to him and he's saying, look, Peter, who do you think I am? Remember what Peter said? How art the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. In other words, your mind didn't conjure that up. Your thinking as a Jewish man, as a fisherman, didn't conjure that up. Your training in the synagogue 
might not have caused you to understand that. The Spirit of God revealed that to you. My Father in heaven, you are Peter or Petros, little stone, and upon this Petra, this rock, Jesus goes on to talk about himself there in Matthew 16. As he begins to speak, remember what he told Peter? He said, the Son of Man has come to give his life, to be rejected, be turned over to the hands and crucified and slain and raised on the third day. Peter kind of forgot that part. Jesus had actually told him that. And so Peter actually went so far there in Matthew 16 to rebuke Jesus. Do you remember that? It's like, no, Lord, that's not going to happen. Do you remember what Jesus said to poor Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Basically, he's saying you can't tell the difference between that which comes from God and that which comes from men. So as Jesus is talking about his rejection, he was actually telling him, look, everybody's going to be looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. I'm telling you what kind of Messiah I am. Here's what's going to happen. You might want to listen. And of course, the beautiful picture of this is in the last chapter of John's gospel when Peter is restored, amen? He denies Christ three times and Jesus meets him on a beach and says, Peter, do you love me? And so God has always had this plan that begins with grace and ends with glory for the Jewish people. And we're in that period of time where we can look at it and we can see this conflict between Isaiah 53 and what we now are going to see with the remaining chapters here in the book of Isaiah. Despised, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief that the world would hide their faces from him. But he was still the king of kings. He was still the Lord of lords. Why? Because he's coming again. He's coming again. They didn't recognize him the first time. They were too focused on the prosperity and not on the promise. Sometimes when people get focused on prosperity and they don't remember the promise, you see some of the promises of God are not exactly what you'd call good. Know this, that in this world you will have tribulation. See, the promise is you're actually going to be tried. You're going to be tested. You're going to have problems. Things are going to go bad. It isn't always going to be good. You're going to go through stuff. You're going to get sick. You're going to lose loved ones. You're going to lose jobs. You're going to lose homes. But what was Jesus' encouragement? What begins with grace always ends with glory. But know this, I've overcome the world. How does he overcome the world? By giving you eternal life. This world cannot keep you because you are the king's. And he is going to take you home. So in that sense, no matter what happens to you in this life, you are still going to be glorified. Don't miss that. Because we can get hung up exactly the same way that the Jewish people got hung up We're looking at all these other promises and we don't like the ones that says he's going to be despised 
and rejected and the chastisement for our peace is going to put and he's going to die at the hands. You see, there's, there's some dying that sometimes we as believers got to do to ourselves as well. We have to keep our eyes focused on the later things. So as we get to chapter 61, we'll see this in great detail next week. And they're just within one verse. And to give you a little heads up before we get there, you might remember the story, if you were with us in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 4, Jesus comes into the synagogue in Capernaum, and he, he begins to teach, and he's flipping through the scroll of Isaiah, right? So that would have been a scroll that if it was like the great scroll of Isaiah that's in the shrine of the book today, it would have been some 26 feet long or so, without chapters and verses, And Jesus turns it exactly to what we call Isaiah chapter 61, the first verse and a half. And it says there, regarding this time. And so he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was custom there in verse 16 of Luke 4, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read... He always stood up to read. And as he was handed the book of the prophet, he opened the book and he found the place where it was written. Now imagine grabbing a scroll that is the better part of 30 feet long. It's from here to the other side of the stage. And the print is about what we would call a size 14 font. I have to print my notes in 16 because I'm blind. But these are big letters. And Jesus turns to the place and he begins to read verse 18. There in Luke's gospel, which is actually Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recover sight of the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. You know what's crazy? He stops right there. Why is that weird? Because the next half of what we call verse 2 says this, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So Jesus stopped in the New Testament part before the second coming. This is why I was sent to bring about grace, to get you home to glory, to present the good news. But he never talked about what comes next, which would be the pouring out of the wrath of God. Why is that important? Because he closed the book, and Luke's gospel records in verse 21, he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, here's the good news. Comma, age of grace, 
then the second half of verse 2. That part still hasn't happened. That's the part where he's coming again. You see in one verse, so Jesus stopped before he got to the difficult things. He stopped as he's talking about the glory of, of Israel, the reign of the Messiah, this part, which would be after the Lord pours out his vengeance. He hasn't done that yet. That's how the Jewish people could be kicked out of the land. That's how the Holocaust could happen. All of those things, God has yet to avenge those things on this earth. God hasn't come back, sent Jesus to deal with those things yet, but he will. Because Jesus is coming again. You see, the disciples were constantly looking for, you know, this this ruler that was going to come and finally exalt them. And you might remember that in Mark chapter 10, Matthew's gospel records it as well. Remember the disciples were kind of traveling with Jesus together and they start arguing between themselves when your kingdom comes. Hey, can I sit on your right? You know, here's, here's the sons of thunder. James and John. Well, I'll sit on your right and you can sit on, no, I'm sitting on the right, you sit on the left. They're thinking the kingdom was going to come right then and there. Remember what Jesus said to them? He who among you desires to be great must become the servant of all. For the Son of Man did not come into this world to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He was telling them, look guys, the kingdom isn't going to happen in your lifetime. You're not going to get a chance to sit on my right or my left here on this earth. That's going to be later. They were expecting this kingdom to be established right then, right there. And so Jesus reminds them, look, it's not going to happen as you think. And so picking back up here in Isaiah's 60th chapter, he speaks of this time when the gates to the temple are open. How many gates are in the temple right now? None, because there's no temple on the temple mount. How many courts are there of praise on the temple mount? None. There's no Jewish temple on the temple mount. How many Jewish worshipers are are bringing their offerings to the temple? None, because there's no temple on the temple mount. And so Jesus says all the wealth is going to come back to Israel. He's going to pour out his wrath. The vengeance of the Lord is going to come. And then there's going to be worship in Jerusalem again. And we'll get into this very shortly in the rest of the book of Isaiah. But there are two more temples coming. The first one's going to be built by the Antichrist. The second one is going to be the one where the Jewish people worship again with King Jesus. Hadn't happened yet. The wealth is flowing in. Verse 13 And the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, and the cypress, and the pine, and the box tree together 
to beautify the place of, check this out, my sanctuary. Hmm. Comes by grace. The light has come. So there's, you're talking about after the time that Jesus was here, after the gospel of grace has been initiated, and yet today there's no temple, so there's got to be another temple. It's got to be another time. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The prophecy of Zechariah says that Jesus one day will come back to Jerusalem and plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. It will literally split in two. And the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. That certainly isn't happening. There's no bowing right now. Just threats from all around. It's one of the stunning things when you travel to Israel and you travel around, especially when you get to the Golan Heights. And you travel out to the top of Mount Bental and look down on, you can actually see the Syrian military installations that are just a couple of miles away. And you drive down the next canyon and there's Lebanon with Hezbollah. On the southern border, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia is less than 20 miles away from Elat. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come to you, and those who despise you shall fall at your feet, prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Well, that's not exactly what's going on right now in Israel. Matter of fact, the Temple Mount isn't even controlled by the Jewish people. It could be, but they've allowed, in essence, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan controls it. And he's assigned uh, the mullah to rule over the Temple Mount, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. It's actually Arab. But it won't always be that way. Because Jesus is coming again. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated. You kind of get in the picture? Roughly 6.5 million Jews died in just the Holocaust of World War II. That doesn't include the Holocaust that happened during the Spanish Inquisition. Doesn't include the destruction of Jerusalem, where virtually all of the Jewish people were either kicked out of Jerusalem and murdered. It doesn't include the Jews that were wiped out in Africa. The Jewish people have been the most hated people on the planet Earth by population that have ever existed. They have suffered more than any other people group on the planet. Brought to near extinction more than once. Whereas you've been forsaken and hated so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence and a joy for many generations. And you shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and the milk of the breast of kings. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, your Savior. There's only one way to know Savior, Amen. That's a unique term for the Old Testament. The one who saves. Your Redeemer. The one who pays your price. The Mighty One of Jacob. 
Jacob represented all 12 tribes, amen? Later to be called Israel. But Jacob was the father of all of them. Instead of bronze, I'll bring you gold. Instead of iron, I will bring you silver. Instead of wood, I'll bring you bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I'll make your officers peace, your magistrates righteousness, and violence shall no longer be heard in your land. When you travel to Israel today, even the police in Jerusalem drive vehicles that are armored, and all of the glass is covered with shields to protect them from rocks, which are hurled off of virtually every overpass in the city of Jerusalem every day. Now, it's not to say it isn't safe, because there's a massive military presence. There are bomb disposal units on virtually every major intersection. Cans to where they can drop a package inside of it and detonate it if they need to. It also happens to be one of the safest cities in the world because of these things, but it is a contested place. But God says it isn't always going to be that way. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land. There's a 35-foot high border wall that separates the, the Palestinian East Jerusalem from Jerusalem proper because it was for many, many, many years that virtually every day someone would blow themselves up on a bus or a subway line. In the last 11 years, 6,500 missiles have been launched from Gaza into Ashkelon, the southern end of the city of Jerusalem. 6,500 missiles. How long do you think the United States of America would put up with missiles being launched from Tijuana? And I'm not saying that that's what would happen, but imagine that our neighbor to the south decides they're going to fire rockets into San Diego every day. The last three times I've been to Israel, there has not been one of those times in 10 days that we have not witnessed missiles launched towards Jerusalem. They rarely make it because it's just too far. It's out of the range of the missiles that are being launched. The reason I'm saying this is God isn't going to put up with this forever. He's not missing any of it. And yet the world is saying, well, just give up more land. You might want to read Joel's prophecy. The land belongs to God. God gave it to the Jewish people as a perpetual inheritance. It actually belongs to them. And we'll delve into this a little more in our next couple of studies. What God is doing as these things unfold in their finiteness, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise and the sun shall no longer be your light by day. Now there's a key for you. Who do you think might be the light? Think it might be the light of the world? Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be unto you an everlasting light. And your God your glory. Israel today is largely a secular country. It is predominantly Jewish. In other words, it, it is Jewish in its flavor, but it is hardly Jewish 
in what you would say is religious Judaism. Many Jewish people are pretty much Jewish in the fact that their, their heritage is Jewish. And they loosely celebrate the feast days and all of those kind of things. But as far as a really seeking after the righteousness that's found in the Torah, it's more of these are the things that we do to keep tabs on our Jewish roots. But no longer. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor your, shall your moon withdraw itself. And the days of your mourning shall be ended, and also the people shall be all righteous. And the people shall be all righteous. What's the only way that anyone can be righteous? It's to be found in Christ. Amen? So if Isaiah's writing this in 686 B.C., and this requires that there be no violence in the land of Israel, and it requires that you be actually righteous, not just temporarily so because of a temple that actually isn't on the Temple Mount, but all your people will be righteous. What was Paul's word to the Jewish people? It was written after Jesus went to heaven. One day, all Israel will be saved. It's got to still be future, church. Because it has to do with salvation itself. For there is none righteous, not one. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. None of us can boast about it. There is one way and one truth and one life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. There is only one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other name under heaven whereby Anyone can be saved. You get it? That's the truth. That's what Isaiah sees. He sees salvation coming to the Jewish people in mass. And they shall inherit the land forever. What's going on in Israel right now? More land for peace. Let's give up this settlement or that chunk of Israel Israel is the most insanely divided chunk of dirt on the planet Earth. In spots, it's less, less than five miles wide. The country, hear what I said, the country is less than five miles wide. From the West Bank Territory, the headquarters of the PLO, through the part that Israel still owns to the Jordan River, to Jordan, the country Jordan, is less than five miles the land will be yours. God says it all belongs to them. It doesn't belong to the PLO. It doesn't belong to Jordan. It doesn't belong to Lebanon. It doesn't belong to Syria. It doesn't belong to Egypt. It doesn't belong to any of those other nations. It belongs to the Jewish people. And I know this sounds crazy, but God said so. So we can divide it up all you want. We can give away the Gaza Strip. We can try and force Israel to give back the Golan Heights. We can tell them, you know, well, they're the occupied. They're not occupied. From God's perspective, that land is not occupied. It actually belongs to the Jewish people. What does it say? Your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. And the little one shall become a thousand, and one small one shall be a strong nation. And the Lord will hasten it in its time. 
crazy. Think about that in light of the politics of the Middle East right now. One little tiny nation that occupies so much of the time at the UN. About 30% of the last 15 to 20 years of the declarations made in the UN have been about Israel. Think about that one for a second. A little tiny nation whose population is less than that of Los Angeles County. And yet the whole world is focused on them for some reason. The Bible says so. God's glory is going to return to the tabernacle, to the temple, just exactly as it says. Notice, notice that, of my sanctuary. The sanctuary of the Lord is inside the temple of the Lord. Some people who spiritualize these things forget the glorious future that God has promised for the Jewish people. What a glorious day when it actually will be the city of peace. Amen? When people come to worship the Lord from all over the earth. Think about that. Can you imagine when Jesus is actually ruling and reigning in Jerusalem? As he returns, fights the battle of Armageddon and then returns to his rightful place. Sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, the Jewish people have actually come to know Messiah. Anybody else want to be a part of that church service? I'm going to be, I'm going to be there. I might even have to learn to speak actual Hebrew. I don't know. People ask me sometimes, what's the language of heaven? I don't know. It might be Hebrew. That's the heart of every Jewish person today. That's why at Passover, we're going to see this on Sunday. There's an empty place setting. It's for Elijah who is to come. They're they're actually setting a place at the Passover table for Messiah. And one day he's going to come. And they're going to mourn the one that they pierced and be saved. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray together. Father, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem tonight. Lord, we ask that you'd have your hand. Lord, not just on the Jewish people, of course. You love the countless millions, actually, of Muslims and Arabs that dwell in the land right now. And many of them actually are lovers of you. And we pray that you'd protect them as well. But Lord, we pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray, Lord, that you cause us to abound in your grace. To love you the way you love us. Help us to be merciful as you were merciful and kind as you were kind. And patient with people around us, Lord. Help us to be servants. Help us to be lovers of others more than lovers of ourselves. Help us to reach out to the oppressed and the poor and the downtrodden. Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused on heaven. And when no one else will stand for you, Lord, would we stand for you? When no one else will speak for you, would we speak for you? Would your glory be evident in our lives? Would your name be on our lips always? 
King Jesus, we honor you tonight. We bless your name. And we count ourselves privileged to be called your children. Lord, help us to be worthy of your name. Help us to be the bearers of your image. Help us to preach your gospel until you, the King, comes. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.